at its root, our relationship with God could be categorized in one of two ways, by either rebellion or by reconciliation. Those are the root categories, rebellion or reconciliation, rebellion that is rooted in sin or reconciliation that is rooted in God's grace. And that rebellion that is rooted in sin can take on a lot of different forms in our life, can it? As you think about how you have related with God over the years, I think about the father who had a very strong-willed son. I can relate. On the way to the store, he kept telling the child, sit down and buckle your seatbelt. But the little kid just kept standing on a seat in the back. And again, he would say, sit down and buckle your seatbelt. Can any parent relate? Of course you can. And after a time or two more, the child finally sat down. He figured that if he didn't, disaster would strike. And so he slipped down into his seat and he snapped the seatbelt closed and he said, Daddy, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. <laughs> a spirit of rebellion. And that is such an apt picture of some of our rebellion against God. It looks good. How we act and what we do looks good on the outside, but on the inside there's still this rage of rebellion to do our own thing that's happening. For some of us, our rebellion against God is much more explicit in its nature. I think about the fine Christian doctor who had a boy named Keith. And Keith was an intellectual and he graduated high school at the top of his class. But his father began to sense some seeds of rebellion in his son and an unwillingness to respond to his counsel. Keith wanted to go to Stanford University. And since they lived in the southwest region, that was possible, but it meant a significant outlay of money for the family. So Keith was told what it would mean and that he would have to work to help with his expenses. He reluctantly agreed and said he would, and off he went to Stanford. While at Stanford, he never got a job. But he did get fed with all of that gunk from the secular world about parents and how terrible it is to be in submission to them. And so he went back home after that first year during the summer and he announced to his father that he was taken off. Big mistake. His dad said, okay, son, I'll tell you what. Everything that you think you have I bought for you, for you and for your use. The boy played the violin beautifully. So the father said, that Stradivarius violin, you leave that in my home. And the boy kind of gulped and blinked and said, okay. And then he said, by the way, that new car that you drove to school last year, that's mine, so make sure you leave it in the garage. Okay. And the clothes hanging in your closet, I bought them all. Leave them there. The clothes, the son said? Yeah, all the clothes. You may leave with the clothes that you have on you and the, with the shoes that you're wearing. And also, that money in your pocket was the money that I gave you last week. Go ahead and leave it on the counter before you leave. 
And let me see, is there anything else I'm not thinking of? And the boy, now trembling, said, no, Dad, I think you've picked everything that there is. And the father said, okay, you can leave. Who broke the relationship? (laughs) Who rebelled? Was it the father who took everything away? Or the son who wanted to go on his own way? Of course it was the son. He not only insulted the father, but then rebelled against him. And as a result, the father withheld all the good things that he had allowed the boy to use. That evening, of course, they sat down. They had a long talk, eyeball to eyeball, and the very wise father leveled with the young rebel. And today, they have a relationship that's something to behold. But friends, that's a picture of explicit rebellion. And whether your rebellion against God at some point in your life was implicit in its nature, that rebellion of the heart, or explicit in its actions, we know that our relationship with God can be defined by either rebellion or reconciliation. And as we turn to our text this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we see the continuation of this exhortation given in chapter 5. And the exhortation is very clear and very direct and very bold. It is this. Be reconciled to God. And so with that, follow with me as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. This is what Paul writes. He says, working together with him, that's us working together with God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time, and behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your heart also. When you see a passage like this in the New Testament and you see lists of qualities and characteristics and actions, sometimes it's hard to break down exactly the main thrust of what Paul is getting at. 
You see in the beginning of this text, verses 1 and 2, a bridge from the previous section. If you were to look at chapters 5 and 6 together, you would see this big, clear, blinking sign that says, be reconciled to God. Above all else, know that God is reconciling the world to himself, and you have the opportunity to be reconciled to him. That in the state of rebellion or separation from God, that God is working in this incredibly powerful way through the work of Jesus on the cross to forgive you of your sin and to make you a new creation that you would no longer live for yourself, but rather you would live for the one who created you and you would not be defined by your sin, but you would be called the righteousness of God. Wow, that's incredible that God would look at you and say, that person is a picture of my righteousness. And that's the opportunity that you have. That's the opportunity that I have. And here in verse 1 of chapter 6, he reminds us that we can work together with God in this opportunity. Not that you or I work to be reconciled to God. That's God's work. He's doing the reconciliation work. But once you are reconciled, you have the opportunity to work with God in that ministry of reconciliation to other people. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago in chapter 5. He uses the phrase of an ambassador, a diplomatic official that is sent to a foreign land on a mission. (laughs) That's what an ambassador does. And that's what you Christians do because you're not home. Not yet. You're living in a place that's not your home. But you have the opportunity to be an ambassador for the one who is sovereign over this place and your home. And so, that's the work of the apostle and that's the work of the Christian. And you have two opportunities. Opportunity to be reconciled to God and opportunity to be an ambassador of God to this world. And that's what he means when he quotes Isaiah in verse 2 there. He says, In a favorable time, I listened to you, said God, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And Paul says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day. Don't wait any longer. And so, when you see that as the backdrop and the big message of this section of the book, be reconciled to God, opportunity number one, opportunity number two, be an ambassador for God once you are reconciled. When you look at the charge of verse one, you have to pause for a minute because it might feel like it's a little bit out of place in the midst of this incredible work that God is doing. He says in verse 1, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. If God is doing this incredible thing, then how could you possibly receive it in vain? I mean, What's the danger here? How could this massive grand plan of God appear to be hijacked? 
For something to be in vain means literally in the New Testament Greek, it means that it's empty or it has no value or no effectiveness. To say that the grace of God is in vain in your life would mean that it has no lasting value to you and no effect in you and on you for how you navigate the days. So what would display God's grace to be in vain in your life? What would paint that picture? And the answer is if you do not continue in it or endure in this new life that God has given you, then it would appear that God's grace would be seen to be in vain. This is a call to endurance. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 points us back to the wonderful grace of God and points us forward to the endurance that is required to live in it. I wonder if you've ever, of course you have, you, you, you can remember a musical artist that was a one-hit wonder. <laughs> it was like lightning in a bottle, man. They had that one song and then every song after that just seemed to fall a little flat. They appeared to be one thing and they were something else. Or the rookie of the year. That, that rookie year was amazing and within a year or two they were out of the league. Or that flash in the pan, to use another colloquialism, maybe at your job, somebody comes in and they are hot, man. They are on fire for what they're doing professionally. And within a year or two, nobody even remembers their name. What do those things have in common? They all look like one thing at the beginning, but they end up to be something completely different at the end. And the message of endurance is one that says, look like one thing at the beginning when you receive the grace of God or acknowledge him as the king and continue on in it all the way to the end. To endure means the ability to sustain prolonged stress or difficulty without degradation or impairment. Let me say it again because it's really important. What does it mean to endure in something? It means life is hard. You can sustain stress and difficulty, but you will not be diminished in it or impaired by it. You can function at 100% even if the circumstances around you are infinitely more difficult than they were two weeks ago. That's what it means to endure. And in verses 3 through 10, we see four different aspects of this endurance that is applied to the life of the apostle and by extension applied to the life of you and me. And so look at it with me. In verses 4 and 5, we see this endurance in the gospel is an endurance in trouble. Paul lists the things that he had to endure afflictions, hardships, calamities. You might call these the general great troubles of his time. I don't need to tell you that life is hard, that you will go undergo difficulties that you cannot plan for, that you do not expect, 
That is the reality of the human situation for every single one of us. Jesus, in fact, tells his disciples in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul lists troubles from others, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Because, you know, here's the reality. Some people feel the need to be reconciled to God. God has softened their hearts. He's opened their eyes. He's given them a spiritual desire or inkling to continue to pursue him or be reconciled to him. And that's God's work. But there are others who will rise in anger at the mere mention that they should submit their will or their desires to someone greater than they are. And as our culture moves farther away from God, the more violent their reaction will become. And your faith will be tested in this. Whether or not you endure in those instances Paul had to endure beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Some of us look at ourselves in the mirror and examine our own thoughts and minds and we say, I might be that strong to endure that. And others of us perhaps wonder if we can even endure basic scorn and reputational damage. But friends, you can and indeed you must Endure. Paul lists what we might call some troubles of work, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, when the work needs to be done, when people are perishing without knowing the Lord, when the urgency is high, when there is this dual motivation of a fear of the judgment seat of Christ for them and of the love of Christ that is compelling us to serve them. You press hard. You endure stress. Heartache is real. You skip meals. You stay awake at night in prayer and you do so for the sake of other people and for the love of the Lord and you endure in this. All of these hardships that Paul mentions are hardships that we have to endure. They are the hardships for the apostle, but they are the hardships that you might just have in this life. And the call is to endure. Friends, those broad categories of hardships are real. (laughs) I think they're careful in the way that they're applied to him and maybe applied to you. But I think the thing that we lose is if we don't, the thing we lose in this passage if we don't pause and continue to come back to it again is the reality for each and every one of you that there's going to be some real things that tempt you to turn away from God in this life. I mean, let's just say it. It is what it is. There's going to be, and we're going to come back to this in a minute, but there's going to be some real things, some really hard things in this world that are going to cause you to question him. 
that are going to make you wonder if it's worth it. And that's why the message to endure is so important. How do you do that? Well, verses 6 and 7, Paul points us to the source of endurance that we need. He mentions that the source of this endurance is what we might call spirit-given graces. (laughs) He gives a list of them. And the list has one surprise in it. One of these things is not like the other. Let's see if you can pick it out. (laughs) Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. The entire list relates to a combination of disposition and a state of being that has action associated to it. All of them, except for one. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is just plopped down right there in the middle of these different graces. The Holy Spirit plays the vital role in helping you endure the difficulties of life and gospel work. The Holy Spirit gives you supernatural power to receive the grace of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son, but not just to receive that grace, but to continue in it so that grace is not given in vain. And we might say that all of these other things are stated dispositions and they're graces of the Holy Spirit in your life. These things reflect an inward reality. They all point to the fact that the gospel work in you is continuing to form. As you continue to grow in the Lord and navigate life, these graces will indeed continue to grow in you and you will have the disposition that is contrary to the disposition you have before when you seek resistance. It points to the fact that gospel work isn't revenge business. How do you respond or what is your natural instinct when you are devoting yourself to something of importance and effectiveness and people rise up against you? But you succeed anyway. If you're anything like me, your instinct is to say, Ha! I gotcha! I told you so! I'll show you! Don't rise up in that way against what I'm doing. It's too great. It's too important. It's too significant. And you're wrong, and I'm right. But the graces of the Holy Spirit do not compel us toward emotional or social revenge. No matter how bad we want it, the Spirit compels us toward purity, (laughs) knowledge, patience, kindness, and genuine love. Even in the midst of of opposition, slander, difficulty, and even in the midst of persecution. Friends, only God can do that in your life. (laughs) You cannot and will not be able to create that kind of change in you. But the Spirit of God 
can. And so, we endure. Remember what endurance is? Endurance is the ability to sustain prolonged stress or difficulty without degradation or impairment. It's needed because life is filled with troubles. The Spirit helps us endure. But beyond the Spirit helping us endure, there's a weapon of endurance that you yourself can engage in. And that's where Paul goes next in verses 7 and 8. The weapon of endurance is righteous living. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. He says this. He says, he uses that phrase, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Weapons of righteousness. That's a cool thought. Paul in the previous verse, or previous chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in that instance, the idea of righteousness is something that is bestowed upon us. It is a righteous status. It is not something we do or earn. It is something that God gives to us. But here in the next chapter, we see that this righteousness that he is referring to now is something that we do. It has an active component to it. He's talking about a righteous life. And I was thinking about this a lot this week as we consider the fact of what it means for people to appear to be Christians and not. That's what he's talking about when he says, don't, don't accept the grace of God in vain. It's people who aren't they're not turning away from their faith ultimately. They never really had faith in the first place. They appear to have an affinity to the Lord Jesus, but through their life and lack of endurance, it's showing that they don't. I was thinking about how that plays itself out, especially as it relates to righteous living, the weapon that he's talking about here. You know, as you may be aware, there's a growing term that is associated with people who at one time professed faith in Jesus, but eventually turned away from him due to a variety of circumstances or thoughts or teachings. And, and they've started to use this term of deconstructing their faith. Have you heard about that? You read news articles about it from time to time. This last couple years, there's a famous pastor named Joshua Harris, who at one time was a young Christian author who became a high-profile pastor of a megachurch, who underwent some hardship in ministry, who stepped away from ministry for a season, and during that season, he eventually divorced his wife, adopted unbiblical views on human sexuality, and shortly thereafter, deconstructed his faith. And today, very sadly, he does not call himself a Christian and it's hard to watch because he's just a really likable guy. <laughs> but you know what? It seems to me that when people deconstruct their faith, this is not merely an intellectual exercise of deconstruction. That it is nearly always or always accompanied with the laying down of the weapons that God gives you to endure. The weapons of righteous living. Those who abandon righteous living 
and trade them away for their own view of how they should live and counter to God's design, don't endure. <laughs> but endurance is sustained through the weapons of righteousness. Over the past five years, there have been a number of high-profile pastors around this country who have resigned or been fired due to moral failure. They're still Christians, most of them claim to be anyway. They didn't use the weapons of righteousness and they didn't endure in the ministry and as a result, the expanse of the gospel has been hindered, at least from our perspective. But ministry is extended through righteous living. No matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult the situation is around you, Paul says, in honor or dishonor, Slander or praise, whether people like you or hate you, is what he's saying. Righteous living is the weapon. And so what about you? Friends, you will go through something in this life that will tempt you to disengage from God or even turn away from him completely. You will. Troubles from others, perhaps. Maybe it's your friends or your family ridicule you for your way of life for following Jesus. Troubles in your health. That thing that makes you say, why God, why me, or why my spouse, or why my child? Maybe it's your troubles of work. <laughs> Man, some of us are tired. The stress is overwhelming. You don't know if you can go on and the effort that it takes to follow Jesus is substantial. Or perhaps it's just more general troubles of tragedy. God, how could you allow these things, terrible things to happen to good people? You will have something or many things that come your way because life is hard. So how will you endure? How will you keep going in an undiminished or unimpaired fashion? You can do two things. You can use the weapons of righteous living in your left hand and in your right. And what does that look like practically? You, you guys have been here for a while, have heard me say it again and again. What do you do when you don't know what to do next because the world around you is spinning? You do the next right thing. That's it. You do the next right thing. And then you do the next right thing after that. <laughs> And then you do the next right thing after that and the weapons are in your hand and you endure. What else do you do? You rely on the spirit-given graces and you ask for more. God help me. Help the fruit of the spirit in my life to well up more and more so it flows out of me like a beacon of light for people to see when they don't understand how somebody who is going through all of that junk can still function in an undiminished fashion. When you do these things, you endure. And when you endure, you make sure that you did not receive the grace of God in vain. Endurance displays the worth and the effectiveness of God's grace in your life. If you don't endure, you wonder if you really receive God's grace at all. 
If your expression of spirituality or belief isn't matched by faithfulness over the long haul, Paul indicates that it's in vain. Not that God is in vain, but that your expression is in vain. It's empty. It's ineffective. But you don't have to wonder when you endure. Endurance displays the worth and effectiveness of God's grace in your life. And that leads to Paul's closing thoughts in, again in the form of a list. He says that there are a lot of paradoxes of what this endurance actually means. If you have the spirit-given graces in a very difficult world, if you live in this very difficult world and you want to serve Jesus with your life and you're taking up the weapons of righteousness in your left and your right, there is going to be a really unique way that you live. And, and you probably have to ask yourself this question. How do you want to be treated in this life? How do you want to be known? And maybe more importantly, who do you want to be known by and to know you in this particular way? Because in verses 8 through 10, Paul presents these paradoxes of treatment and knowledge. There are two perspectives in this life, two points of view that are very different from each other about who you are and what you will become. One is from the world and one is from God. And here, he seems to indicate that the world, if you care about the, what the world thinks about you, and by the world, generally Paul means those who live by the structures and values of the world, not by God, they will treat you as imposters, unknown, dying, punished, sorrowful, poor, and as someone who has nothing. You might as well just put it on your social media profile right now. They're going to figure it out sooner or later anyway. That's not the type of life or reputation that any one of us want. But you, Christian, can endure even that. Look at the paradox or the contrast as the world views you versus how God views you. He says this, he says, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. True by the standard of the one who made all things and who defines the real and most definitely defines what is true. He says we're treated as unknown and yet well-known. Known by the one who knows all things. Nothing escapes his gaze. And no thoughts of men or women or boys or girls, no matter how quiet in the solitude of your own bedroom or your own closet, will escape him. He knows you. He knew you before the foundation of the world was laid. And he didn't just know about you. He knew you. And by his decree, you came into existence. Paul says, we are as dying, and behold, we live. We live as new creations, it says in chapter 5. The old is gone, the new has come. The outer self might be wasting away, but the inner self is being renewed day by day. We are being treated as punished, and yet not killed, because the things that 
you think keep you alive? Don't. God does. If he cares about the sparrows and the lilies and keeps them alive according to his providential care, how much more valuable are you than they? We are treated as punished and yet not killed because God keeps us alive. We are treated as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This life is hard and yet there is a bigger vision for reality that is before us. Lamentations chapter 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 103, 11 and 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from from us. Ephesians chapter 3, 17 through 19, Paul prays so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of him. We are treated as poor Yet we are making many rich through spiritual and eternal inheritance. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And perhaps the worst insult and the greatest reality of them all. We are being treated as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And going down in Romans 8, verse 37, no, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present nor future nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the message is endure. Endure. Endurance displays the worth and the effectiveness of God's grace in your life. Endure. And he concludes in verses 11 through 13 by saying, our heart is wide open. Let your heart be wide open as well. <laughs> be reconciled to God. Don't let his grace be in vain. Endure. Let's pray. Great are you, Father God, that gives us everything we need and so much more. There is 
some or maybe many here today that are weary or scared or fragile as we all are in different seasons of life. And today, Father, we pray through the weapons of righteous living and the spiritual given graces that you would comfort them and strengthen them to endure. Father, prepare our hearts and our minds on this day, for the day, when difficulty is upon us, such a great difficulty that we would question our own fidelity to you. Prepare us this day to endure. We need you because this is hard and yet you give us enough. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.